Uh, Good morning to each of you. Please take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 9. In the book of John chapter 9. And I invite you to follow along as I read uh, the first seven verses. As he passed by, that is the Lord Jesus, as Christ passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now this morning, as we, as we reflect upon these verses, I want, I want you, I want me to notice five things. Uh, as they unfold in these verses, and I want us to derive uh, several principles, several lessons from these verses that I trust the Spirit of God will impress upon our hearts this morning. And so five things that should, should grab our attention as we, as we read this wonderful incident as John describes it, inspired by the Spirit of God. And the first thing is this, there is a question. You probably noticed that. In verse 1, we read that Christ passed by. He is in the city of Jerusalem. He is no longer there celebrating the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which was the case in chapters 7 and 8. He is now there in all likelihood celebrating the Feast of Dedication. That comes out in chapter 10. And the Feast of Dedication is what the Jews celebrate today during the month of December, Hanukkah. And there is the Lord Jesus in Jerusalem, passing by, walking, his disciples with him. They see a man blind from birth. This immediately raises a question on the part of the disciples. Verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? That he was born blind. In other words, to put it simply, uh, the question is this. How do we account for this man's suffering? There he is, begging. Blind since the day of his birth. Here's what we want to know. How do we account for his blindness? How, in short... Do we account for this man's suffering? Now, that is a question each and every one of us has asked at at some point during our lives. The person who has never asked that question is a shallow person. Uh, It is a question that, that grips us. It is a question that perplexes us. How do we account for suffering? How do we explain 
such anguish and pain and torment. How do we explain it when a person is born blind or deaf? How do we explain it when a person is maimed in a car accident? How do we explain it when a person is racked with cancer? How do we explain it when a person is born into crippling poverty? How do we explain it when a person is victimized by a family member? How do we explain it when someone is overcome with anguish as he sees a loved one plunge himself into ruin before his very eyes? How do we explain suffering? Our world only offers one of two answers. That's all the world has going. Two possibilities out there. The first is this, bad luck. That's all the world has to offer, bad luck. Go through life, keep your head down, and hope it doesn't happen to you. But simply put, we are all victims of blind chance. And the world tries to put a spin on it when it happens tries to find meaning in the midst of what is meaningless. Tries to find some sort of sense in the midst of a senseless event and a senseless world. But when you remove God from the equation, that that is all man can do. That is the best that this world has to offer. Bad luck. Or there is also prevalent within our society today, not so much here in Glen Rose, but you go to other parts of the states and certainly so. I was speaking to Becky this just, just this past week and she was explaining that this is the way it is up in Wyoming, at least in the area where she, where she finds herself and we find it from west to east coast as well today, this idea of bad karma. Well, it's not bad luck, it's bad karma. Which either comes from Hinduism, the, the belief in, in, in Brahma, the eternal power, the universal power, or from Buddhism, I suppose, and its belief in uh, nirvana, eternal peace. And we are all eternal souls on this pilgrimage and journey toward Brahma or nirvana. And we move from one body to another, experiencing reincarnation. And you better not collect bad karma. Because what might happen is you will come back in a life and you will pay for what you have done in another life. So you're born blind or you're born into abject poverty. You've got no one to blame but yourself because you are now reaping what you sowed in a previous life. And that's growing. People don't run around in the States saying, hey, I'm a Hindu or I'm a Buddhist, but it's the New Age movement and it's basically the same kettle of fish. Right. Just different words, just different words. And so we have these two theories, these two answers out there. Bad luck, bad karma. And for where I'm from where I sit, from my vantage point, nothing does. Neither does anything for the soul. Both are less than satisfactory because they do nothing, nothing to provide an answer to this most perplexing question of questions. How do I account for suffering? The disciples have their own angle. Their theory, their perspective actually comes across in the way in which they word the question. 
Look at how they pose the question. They don't say, why is this man suffering? No, they pose the question as follows. Verse 2, who sinned? So you know which angle they're coming from. This man or his parents, that he was born blind. And so as far as they're concerned, there is only one possible explanation for this man's blindness. It is punitive. Either he did something, I suppose this, I suppose that is why this particular instance led to the question, because, hey, he was born this way. And so if it was his own sin, when did he sin? Was it in the womb? Did he do something before he was born and he reaped the consequences and he was born blind? Or was it his parents who had sinned? Who sinned? It had to be one or the other. Give us an answer. To explain this man's suffering. That's the question. And then we have secondly. This is the second thing I want you to notice in these verses. The answer. You guessed it. Verse 3. Jesus answered. It was not that this man sinned. Or his parents. But that the works of God. Might be displayed in him. Beautiful words. I'll get to them in just a moment. But please notice, for starters, what the Lord Jesus isn't saying. If we rip, and we're prone to doing this, if we just lift that phrase, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, if we lift it out of context, we could arrive at erroneous conclusions. If we tear it from the context of Scripture as a whole, we could draw wrong inferences from that. And so please notice that when the Lord Jesus states it was not that this man sinned or his parents, he is not, he is not denying that suffering exists because of original sin. Christ does not deny that here in this verse. All suffering exists because of original sin. God created this world and God having created the heavens and the earth declared it is good. Perfect harmony, perfect symmetry, perfect beauty as created by a perfect God. When Adam sinned, what happened? Adam plunged human nature into depravity. And as a result of the fall, as a result of what we call original sin, that is Adam's first transgression when he disobeyed God, as a result of that singular sin, we are not born in the way in which Adam was created and fashioned by God that is in God's image. But we have lost the image of God and we are born as sinful creatures. And on top of that, And compounding that, we have this fact that as a result of Adam's sin, his original sin, God subjected the entire created order to futility. And so it is as a result of original sin that suffering exists. Why is there death? Original sin. Why is there illness and sickness? Original sin. Why are there wars and disasters and accidents and calamities? Why is there pain and anguish and suffering? What is the origin? 
The origin of it all goes back to man's rebellion against a glorious God way back in the beginning in the garden. The Lord Jesus is not denying that. Secondly, the Lord Jesus is not denying that some, please notice that word, I'll say it again, some suffering is the result of specific sins that we have committed. Scripture testifies to that. You need look no further than the example of David. King David, a man after God's own heart, but King David lost a child in infancy. And King David lived with a house plagued with turmoil. Why? As a direct result, as a direct consequence of his sin. At times, God does judge. He does send temporal judgment upon the specific sins that we commit. Christ is not denying that. He is not denying that some, not all, some suffering is the direct consequence of specific sins that we commit. Thirdly, the Lord Jesus is not denying That some suffering is the result or consequence of a sin that others have committed. A mother has a cocaine habit. Her babies live with the consequences. A father is physically, verbally abusive. The children live with the consequences. A drunk gets behind the wheel of a car. And other drivers on the road potentially bear the consequence. And so Christ is not denying that. He is not denying that some suffering, at times suffering, is the result of a specific sin that another individual has committed. But what the Lord Jesus is denying in His answer What he is denying, and here is is, is how he is correcting the disciples' thinking. He is denying the disciples' assumption that all suffering is necessarily punitive. That's the disciples' thinking. That's the disciples' outlook. Here is a man born blind. There can only be one explanation. There is only one possible way under heaven we can explain this. The man is being judged by God. It is punitive because of a specific sin he has committed or a specific sin that his parents have committed. That is what the Lord Jesus is correcting. This assumption that all, sin, all, all suffering is punitive. That's an extremely important lesson for us to hear, isn't it? At times we can fall into that trap, we can fall into that false thinking when we go through suffering, or we see someone else going through suffering. Oh, I or they are, are, are reaping what they have sown. That this is God getting them. This is God judging them. Yes, at times God does discipline His own. 
Yes, I've already made it clear, and the Lord Jesus is not denying it, and we see it throughout Scripture from cover to cover, that God disciplines His children, and suffering is a means at times by which He does so. But it is an erroneous assumption, conclusion on our part, to always see suffering and to always conclude, oh, God is judging that individual. Now, we need to be very clear, and oh, how this requires such wisdom on our part, doesn't it? Such tremendous wisdom. Oh, how we must seek the wisdom of God. That when we pass through those valleys and we pass through those trials, that we seek His face and we beg Him to show us why this suffering has befallen us. Is this an act of discipline? And here's the thing, I guarantee it. When the Lord disciplines His own, He never leads us in doubt as to the cause of that discipline. The Lord does not simply discipline us through suffering and then leave us to figure it out. If the cause of our suffering is God disciplining us, He will make that abundantly clear. Because the purpose of the suffering, the purpose of that discipline is what? Correction. And so He won't leave us hanging. Because he has a purpose in it. He has an end in view. But again, may we be very clear on this. And this is what the Lord Jesus is clearing up in the first part of his answer. It was not that this man sinned or his parents. In this particular instance, you are wrong to jump to the conclusion that it is God's punitive judgment or discipline upon this man. No, yes, at times, at times, God does discipline in that fashion. But not always. And then the Lord Jesus does a wonderful thing. In the second part of his answer, he moves the disciples carefully. He moves them away from the origin of suffering to the purpose of suffering. That the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, my disciples, why this man is suffering? Why this man was born blind. You're seeking the answer in the origin, but I want you, I want to, I want to move your thinking into a completely different realm, and I want you to ponder the purpose. That even before the foundation of the world, God ordained this man's blindness with a specific, most wonderful end in view, that he might display his works among men. The particular work that is in view in this particular instance is God's work of healing, that he would restore this man's sight. We see something similar in the case of Lazarus. When we get into chapter 11, we'll see this most clearly there in chapter 11, Lazarus has died. The news comes to the Lord Jesus and the Lord Jesus states this illness does not lead to death. Here's his his explanation. It is for the glory of God. So that the son of God may be glorified through it. What a wonderful way to look at suffering, friend. What a tremendous way to handle suffering. To understand that for those who are called, 
according to God's purpose, that He has designed our suffering, whatever the nature of it, He has designed it with this specific goal in view, to display His works, to magnify His glory. I could spend the rest of the meeting talking about this. I could go on for countless Sundays talking about this. But let me give you, give you three great works, brothers and sisters, when you find yourself in those valleys and the clouds have gathered overhead and you're in a day of anguish of soul and suffering. Three great works of God that you should be looking for, I should be seeking for, and we should be holding on to for all we're worth. First is this. In suffering, God displays His power in purifying us. In purifying us. Listen to the words of Hebrews 12.10. God disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. That's what we should be looking for in the face of suffering. How God is making us more like Himself. Holy. William Bridges writes, The sins of God's people are like birds' nests. Now, if that hasn't caught your interest, I don't know what will. The sins of God's people are like birds' nests. What does he mean? As long as leaves are on the tree, you can't see them. But in the winter of affliction, when all the leaves are off, the bird nests appear plainly. And so at times, that is God's expressed purpose. He has brought suffering into our lives. He has ordained those dark days that He might show us our sin. That He might loosen our grip on this world. That He might cause us to get back on track. That He might cause us to yearn for that which is eternal as opposed to that which is temporal, that He might humble us before Him, that we might seek His face, and that we might turn from our sin. That is a great work of God. When God works like that in your life, when God works like that in my life, oh, how we should praise Him, because He has just put His glory on display. The second work that we should be looking for is this. God displays His power in comforting us. 2 Corinthians 1.5, the words of the Apostle Paul. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. In that particular Context, the Apostle Paul is speaking of persecution. 
the affliction of Christ. As he was persecuted, we can expect to be persecuted. We can expect the same opposition on the part of the world. And he wants believers to understand that when that happens, there is comfort. If we share in Christ's afflictions, we will share abundantly in his comfort too. You can bet on it. And yet we can apply the principle far, far greater, make a far greater application to the realm of suffering in general. That it holds true that we, God's children, belong to the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts. As you think of how God, the Father of mercies and God of all comforts, comforted, sustained, upheld Joseph. As he was sold by his brothers, as he was separated from his father, his homeland, as he was sold as a slave in the land of Egypt, as he was wrongfully imprisoned in a dungeon, affliction upon affliction upon affliction, unimaginable suffering. And yet we see the works of God wonderfully displayed in the life of Joseph, do we not? We see the glory of God displayed as God himself upholds and sustains Joseph. In December 2004, my sister gave birth to a little girl with trisomy 13, died eight days later. As I observed my sister and as I watched my brother-in-law, I beheld the glory of God. I saw the works of God. I saw God uphold and sustain and comfort as only He who is the Father of mercies and God of all comfort can do. And not only, not only was my brother-in-law and my sister comforted and encouraged during that time, But how God used that to display another work by exhorting me and others who looked on as his grace was poured out in their lives and made evident through their lives. How how, how I was exhorted, how others were exhorted, how others were encouraged to give glory to God for his great works among men. Thirdly, brothers and sisters. When we pass through suffering and we're looking for God's hand in it, we should remember that He displays His power, not only in purifying us, not only in comforting us, but in changing us. As the Apostle Paul declares in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, we rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Knowing Because here's what we know. Suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. In other words, suffering changes us. Or rather, Almighty God, through suffering, changes us. I read this at the men's Bible study a couple of Months ago on a Wednesday evening, let me share it with the rest of you. It's from the pen of Joel Beakey. Consider as an example the story of a man who once found a cocoon of the emperor moth 
and took it home to watch it emerge, as many of us probably did as children. One day, a small opening appeared. For several hours, the moth struggled but couldn't seem to force its body past a certain point. Deciding something was wrong, the man took scissors and snipped the remaining bit of cocoon. The moth emerged easily, its body large and swollen, the wings small and shriveled. The man expected that in a few hours the wings of the moth would unfurl in their natural beauty, but they didn't. The moth spent its short life dragging around a swollen body and shriveled wings. Why? Because the struggle and pain necessary to pass through the tiny opening of the cocoon are God's way of forcing fluid from the body of a moth into the wings. The merciful snip of the scissors was in reality most cruel. Oh, if we could take that to heart, brothers and sisters. The merciful snip of the scissors was actually most cruel. You see, God has a design. Our sovereign creator and redeemer has a purpose. It is a purpose that cannot be impeded. It is a a purpose that cannot be altered. It is a purpose that cannot be challenged. He has predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. And it will happen. And the means, and here we probe into the realm of infinite wisdom, a principal means by which God has chosen to bring this about is in the trial of suffering. There He has chosen to put His mighty works on display. There He has elected to put His glory on On display. And how these words ought to encourage us when we find ourselves in the midst of that hour of affliction. Here's the purpose. Verse 2, verse 3. That the works of God might be displayed in us. In us. The third thing I want us to notice in these verses. There's a question. Been there. There's an answer. We've seen it. There's an exhortation. Verse 4, Christ builds on his answer. In verse 3, the answer he has given, he now builds on that with a word of exhortation. We must. Urgency. You sense the urgency. We must. We're, We're compelled to do what? To work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. What's he, what's, he, what's he talking about there? While it is day, night is coming. I think he unlocks any secret that might be there in verse 5. The first statement, as long as I am in the world. While it is day, as long as I am in the world, night is coming. My departure out of this world. While I am here, while you are gathered around me, here is what we are called to do. We are called to work the works of God. And there is a sense of urgency. We are called to put on display the glory of God. 
And that is a word of exhortation, not merely for the disciples, but that is a word of exhortation for us today. The time is short. While it is day, night is coming. I heard a preacher once say that if you are 35 years of age and you achieve or arrive at the average life expectancy here in the United States, if you're 35 years of age, you have only 500 days to live. Baffled me when he made the statement, then he explained himself. When you subtract the time spent sleeping, working, tending to personal matters, hygiene, odd chores, medical matters, eating, traveling, and miscellaneous time stealers, you have roughly the equivalent of only 500 days to spend as you wish. Oh, how I need to wake up. 500 days to work the works of God. To declare the excellencies of God. To put on display the glory of God in the home. As husbands and fathers. To display the works of God in the manner in which we love our wives. And raise our children as women in the home. In the manner in which you you conduct yourself as a wife, as a mother, as a neighbor. In the workplace whether it be in the school or the courtroom or or the, the, the farmer's field, wherever we find ourselves day in and day out, that we might put on display by our conduct, by our, by our words, even by our thoughts before men, the works of God. And give evidence to the grace of God and the power of God having transformed us. And having translated us from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Oh, the urgency we should feel. It was William Borden, famous missionary, but he didn't last long on the field. And one commentator writes, William Borden came from a wealthy, privileged family. Was a graduate of Yale University and had the promise of a wonderful and lucrative career before him. But he felt a call to serve God as a missionary in China and left for the field, even though his family and friends thought him a fool for going. After a short time away and even before he reached China, William Borden contracted a fatal disease and died. He had given up everything to follow Jesus. He died possessing nothing in this world. But Borden did not regret it. We know this because he left a note as he lay dying that said, No reserve, no retreat, and no regrets. He had made it his life's ambition to work the works of God. That doesn't mean Necessarily mean, it might for some of you, some of us, it does not necessarily mean we need to get on a boat to go to China. But it means we must give Christ the preeminence in our homes, in our marriages, at the workplace, on the ball field, wherever we find ourselves day in and day out. 
The question that must always be in the forefront of our minds is this. What do people see in me? That marks me as being any different than anybody else. What is it that people behold in me? That clearly demonstrate that I belong to God most high. That I have been purchased by the blood of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That I have experienced the transforming power of the Spirit of God. Am I working the works of God? Do I feel that sense of urgency? Can I say with Christ, we must, we must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Fourth thing I want you to notice is the claim. Christ makes a claim right there in the fifth verse. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We've heard that before back in John chapter 8 verse 12. I am the light of the world. You start reading in John 1, you go right through to the end of the book, and you will see this repeated reference to the Lord Jesus as light. The fact that the Lord Jesus is light necessarily implies that the world is in darkness. And so John makes it clear right at the near the outset of the book. He says, this is the judgment. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Despite despite what people say, nobody rejects the Lord Jesus for rational reasons. I don't, I don't care who says it. Nobody rejects the Lord Jesus for rational, philosophical, or intellectual reasons. People reject Christ for moral reasons. And any reasons they give other than moral are simply excuses. Well, how do I know God really exists? How can I trust that the Bible is the word of God? Wasn't the resurrection a hoax? These are merely excuses. This is not the power of rational thought. This is not enlightened thinking. Let me repeat it again and make it clear. Nobody rejects Christ for intellectual reasons. Why do people reject Christ? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love. The darkness. Rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Because of man's moral darkness. To see and to perceive and to understand requires a miracle on the part of Almighty God. It is most interesting to see in Scripture how the Holy Spirit inspires the divine authors to draw a parallel between the original creation of the universe and the new birth, the new creation. Listen to the words of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
Now listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's a reference to the creation account. Let light shine out of darkness. The God who said that has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you are here this morning and you aren't a Christian, that's what you need. You need a miracle. You don't need some self-help recipe. And God help us, we certainly don't need some moral psychology. You need a new birth. A new heart. A radical transformation from on high. Whereby that darkness is dispelled. And you behold the glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see your sin like you've never seen it before. And you see the holiness of God like you never saw it before. And you behold the sufficiency of a dying Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, on Calvary's cross like you never perceived it before. That is the light going on. That is the light of the world shining in the inner caverns and recesses of your darkened soul to show you to convict you of your sin and to convince you of the truth. I pray we grasp that here this morning. That we don't need to be persuaded in mind. We don't need to simply affirm truth. We don't simply need to attend this church. We must be born again. I think we've done an injustice to the new birth. With an evangelicalism. We've simply equated it with salvation. You believe you're born again. That means you have eternal life. And that's the extent of it for a lot of people. No, the new birth is an awakening. It is a new genesis. It is a new creation. It does not leave us in the same state. This is a morbid illustration, but I hope it serves the purpose. If I were to walk out onto Highway 56 behind me and be struck by an 18-wheeler, I would be entirely different than I was before. So too, when the Spirit of God gets a hold of a sinner. You, you cannot, we cannot remain the same. The light has gone on. The scales have fallen from our eyes. We were blind, but now we see. The fifth thing I want you to notice is that there is a miracle. And the miracle serves to illustrate this great spiritual truth. I am the light of the world. Now, here's the miracle to illustrate it symbolically. Verse 6, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Why does Christ spit on the ground? I do not know. Why does he make mud with the saliva? I do not know. He may, he may, I won't be adamant here, he may be drawing a parallel between creation, man created out of the dust of the earth. 
And now this new creation is about to take place. And so Christ spits on the ground, makes this mud with a saliva, anoints the man's eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I think this is tremendously significant because right there in brackets, what do we read? Which means sent. And what is it? Christ has just declared back in verse four. We must work the works of him who sent me. 22 times in chapters 5 through 9, Christ refers to himself as the one who has been sent by God. You think back to the Feast of Booths when they celebrated that feast and they had that ritual of going to the pool to collect water. What pool did they go to? The pool of Siloam, which means what? Sent. And it was that water that they then spread over the altar. And it was in that context that Christ then declared, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so the Lord Jesus is using this physical healing. And using the fact that he has the power to heal this man physically to point to what? That spiritual healing, spiritual enlightenment, illumination is only found in the one who is sent from God. That he alone has this authority. He alone has this power. That he alone is able to remove those scales from our blind eyes, spiritually speaking. That the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened to behold the glory of God in Christ. Let me impress this upon us and really try to drive this home, friends. When we talk about blindness, sight, when we talk about the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ, please understand, we are not merely talking about a, a notional knowledge. We are talking about a sensible knowledge. I heard a preacher once say, what is the distance between heaven and hell? It is the distance between our head and our heart. I fear, fear for countless people who have nothing more than a notional knowledge of the gospel. And it has never seeped down and taken root in the heart, thereby producing that fruit which is in keeping with salvation. No, when, when, when the scales are removed and we behold the glory of God in Christ, we become a new creation in Christ Jesus. On another occasion entirely, the Lord Jesus is passing by, walking along, and two blind men call out to him. And the Lord Jesus turns and asks them, what do you want me to do for you? Do you remember their answer? Lord, let our eyes be opened. Let our eyes be opened. Friend, I'm just going to tell it to you like it is this morning. If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not a Christian, oh, make this your cry this day. Lord, let my eyes be opened.